Okay, so the last lecture, uh, we were talking about um, competition and, and the results of competition between organisms. And uh, I didn't quite finish, so I just want to finish up on that lecture, and then we'll move on to predation, uh, an interaction between two species which results in increasing the fitness in one and decreasing the fitness in the other. But let's, let's just finish up with, with competition. We were talking about character displacement and uh, beak depths, and uh, we, had, we had shown that when, when, to, when, when you have two closely related um, uh, birds with, with the same beak size, if they live on islands uh, separate from one another, they can feed on the same food. But if they live on an island together, what happens is that you have this character displacement where uh, one of them will, uh, the beak of one will get bigger and the beak of the other will get smaller so they, so they can exploit different food resources. And this, this character displacement uh, is the beginning of, of species formation. And, and this is very common on uh, islands, and these are the finches, uh, the famous finches from the Galapagos Islands that Darwin first based his theory of evolution, or it was, a, it was an important part of his theory of evolution, uh, where he, he realized that there must have been an ancestor finch, um, these are all finches, that all of these other finches that had different uh, representation on different islands uh, evolved from through this slow uh, change in traits that is selected for uh, as a result of different combinations of species being on together or alone in different islands. Um, and this is what's called uh, adaptive radiation. And this is really a powerful mechanism uh, for evolution. This is the Galapagos finches, but you also see this in extreme form in Hawaii uh, among the, the honey creepers, showing uh, this, this incredible diversity of beak types that have evolved to exploit different kinds of food. Okay, so before we go on to predation, I just want to walk you through... Uh, an evolutionary scenario so that that you can see how this might work on an island archipelago. So if this is the mainland, okay, and we're going to start with an ancestor species A. Um, and we're, we're going to have, uh, our archipelago is going to have three islands, okay, and let me draw this. Here's the three islands, the same three islands. So this is time passing.
So as we move from, from, these are the same three islands as a function of time passing, okay? So at the beginning, um, we're going to have our founder species flying and starting and colonizing the island, okay? So A is on this island. And so the first thing that happens is that A evolves and becomes B. So each, each one of these is just the name of a species, okay? This is species A, species B, uh, through what's known as the founder effect. And that is that you have a few members of this species uh, colonizing an island, you have a tiny gene pool, <clears throat> and uh, the genetic composition of this drifts such that it is actually becomes a different species from the one on the mainland. So A becomes B, so this little arrow means becomes B on that island um, through, the, through the founder effect. And now we're going to have B migrate to a new island. So, so A is now B on this island, right? And uh, B is going to colonize this island. And through that same founder effect, B becomes C. Um, so just let me write what, what's happening here. B becomes C. I think you can see what's happening on one island. And then it migrates back So let's let C migrate back to where B is. Uh, and C also founds a new island. So we're going to let C migrate here. So we end up with C and B here, now able to compete with each other, C here and C here. Okay, so we've got a new combination of species, and we're going to let C become D here uh, through the founder effect. Migra and D is going to migrate over to this island, um, and we are going to. So C becomes E when with B because of character displacement. So C becomes E here when it's with, with D, so you end up with E and B on this island. Um, D is going to migrate to this island, so we have C and D here, and uh, C has evolved to be D here. So we also have C becomes D 
when alone. Okay, so this is just a, a scenario we're making up. Okay, you can make up any scenario, but it's to give you um, the the idea of how this um, adaptive radiation comes about. Starting with so, starting with one single species on the mainland. If you have a island archipelago where, where species can be isolated enough from, from each other uh, to restrict but not completely eliminate the gene flow, you can have this rapid adaptive radiation. So evolutionary biologists often study islands in order to study this phenomenon. Okay. Um, so just to summarize for competition, Inter-specific competition results in either competitive coexistence which can be achieved either through niche differentiation Do you remember an what what was an example of that last time The barnacles in the intertidal um, one took the high road and one took the low road that's called niche differentiation or Character displacement. And this can happen very rapidly. People have studied, um, there's really interesting, I, I hesitate to tell you about really interesting things that you don't have to know, but I will anyway. Uh, there's this really interesting study by uh, uh, a couple at Princeton of the Galapagos finches. and. Um, and they've shown that, that you can have character displacement on the islands over a period of one or two years, just depending on, on the amount of rainfall. Um, so it can happen very rapidly by just selecting for uh, d different character traits. Or competitive exclusion, um, which is the case where the niche overlap is so great um, that one of the species uh, completely outcompetes the other. The example from last time was the, uh, the zebra mussels and the paramecia, Gauss's paramecia in the, in the test tubes excluding the other. So these are really important uh, ecological and evolutionary forces, okay? Oh, the other thing I learned from your comments, which I, which I was very heartened by, is that at least one person really liked the definition of the niche of the n-dimensional hypervolume, um, which I have always loved and, uh, and I think is, is fundamentally important because people throw around an ecological niche in everyday language and think of it as a, more as a place in the environment. And I think that um, that more more uh, robust definition is so much more useful. Okay, so let's move on to predation. 
which is a very strong evolutionary force. Um, it, ha it can control population dynamics. Um, it can shape community structure. We're going to talk about each of these. It, it actually influences competition. which in turn shapes community structure. And it's a powerful evolutionary agent. In other words, it, it's very important in um, influencing natural selection. So let's start with the Classic, oh, here's a, here's a classic predator-prey interaction. Uh, this is a wolf, and that is a moose. Well, there's two wolves and a moose being attacked. The wolves are not evil. Ah, they're just getting their meal. Um, okay, so the, uh, this is a very famous classic study of the snowshoe hare and lynx. Lynx is a... Is a, is a uh, cat uh, populations in, uh, northern, in, the, in northern Canada. And these data were collected by the Hudson Bay Company tracking, trapping records. So it's really from the, uh, the amount of animals that were actually trapped that these abundances come from. And that's where these coupled oscillations, this is the hare and this is the lynx, showing these uh, coupled oscillations for over with a, with a roughly 11-year cycle. And people spend a lot of time trying to uh, understand what the underlying force driving, what, what was driving that oscillation. And mathematicians love these coupled oscillate, oscillators. Um, and so the first attempt to model this kind of thing uh, was using a very simple model. Remember we said dndt equals rn, that's our exponential growth equation. And we also said before dndt, or that r is equal to the birth rate minus the death rate. Okay, so, so Grossly oversimplifying the system, the first set of, of equations that were used to try to describe this are, if you use for the predator, you call the predator dn n1 dt equals um, b1 n1 minus d1 n1. Okay, so that's this, this equation. And they said, well, how do we modify this equation so that the, the growth rate of the predator is somehow a function of the density of the prey? Well, the easiest thing to do is just make it proportional, right? So what you do is put N2 in there. So the prey population is going to be N2. And we're going to do the same thing. B2 and 2 minus D2 
and 2. And the question was, well, how do we modify the, the, the prey growth rate equation so that it is somehow a function of the density of the predator? So what would you do? So here, this says the birth rate of the predator is influenced as prey density increases, the birth rate of the predator increases. How would you, how would you modify this equation so that predator density has an effect on it? It's pretty obvious, but trying to get you with me. Hmm? Exactly. It would be the death term. As, uh, as the predator numbers increase, the death term would go up. And it turns out that these are, these are two coupled differential equations that make a beautiful oscillatory system, couple os coupled oscillators, perfect, perfect oscillators. Uh, like that. For this is predator. density, so that would be n1, n2, and this is time, if you chart their density with time. And how many of you have actually had this in a course? Yeah, see? <laughs> and and can just, what courses have you had it in? Differential equations, yeah. The mathematicians love it. But Real populations of predator and prey don't really operate this way. Uh, that they, I mean, you see these oscillations, but rarely can it be attributed solely to the interaction between the predator and the prey. There are often, there's usually um, many other factors. So, uh, and I'll just give you one example. So, so, so ecologists go and say, okay, so what's really going on? And, and here's an example. It turns out that that in, in many cases, the food supply of the prey is oscillating, okay? So the availability of food to the prey oscillates, making the prey population oscillate, which, which then can drive a, a, a oscillation in the predator population. So it's, it's more than just the coupling between the two. There are also external oscillators driving both of them. And this was, and again, I like, I like to try to stress the role of experimentation. Um, here's an experiment done with, oh, uh, 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 rabbits, and I don't know what the predator was. Maybe, may, it might have been, um, I'm not sure what the predator was. But anyway, rabbits, and in, in, in which the, through experimentation, they increased the food supply to the rabbits uh, through fertilization. Um, and they showed that, so this is the control, and this is the, the phase of uh, the cycle in the, in the hare population <coughs> relative to the density in the controls. So showing that when the food supply was increased, um, the, the oscillation was still there, so it wasn't only relieving the, the, the rabbits of food limitation, um, did not eliminate the oscillation, but if you excluded the predators, you still also 
had the oscillation there. And um, if you did both of them, it increased the amplitude of the oscillation relative to the control. So the conclusion from this was that both food supply and the predation uh, affected the, the oscillation. Another very classic experiment um, is the experiment by Huffaker. Back when, when, when people were, began to be enamored of these, these couple differential equations, people wanted to test the uh, hypothesis of those equations in the laboratory, and they tried to set up predator-prey systems in the lab and see if they could get them to go in these coupled oscillations for many cycles. And Huffaker set up a system of, of a, a predatory mite and a prey mite. Ecologists like to use insects as experimental systems because they're, they're small and you can do it in, in, in the lab. Um, and the, this one uh, lives, lived on oranges. So it was an herbivorous mite. And the predator obviously lived on, on mites. And, um, and he set up a very simple system in the lab of oranges and introduced um, the, the predator and the prey. And inevitably, he got this, um, where the, the prey would increase, and then the predator would increase, and overshoot, and the prey would die, and the predator would die. Um, so he, ne he only got one cycle, um, was never able to, to, or with a simple system, could not get this to persist more than, well, it doesn't even qualify as a cycle. So he realized, um, very, so this is a simple system. And he had interspersed, he had a grid, which is shown up here, in which he had oranges, and he had them interspersed with rubber balls to, to have a little bit of complexity in the system. Um, but he found with that design, he could not get the system to persist. So he introduced, he hypothesized that the reason uh, it wouldn't persist is that it was much too simple, um, not close enough to nature. So he, he, he introduced all kinds of complexity. He increased the size of his grid relative to the populations, uh, which would give the prey mites uh, more of a chance to get away from the predator. He put barriers of dispersal, uh, Vaseline, like Vaseline moats, um, and he actually put little launching pads for the prey. I don't know what they looked like, diving boards. I don't know what they were, but um, little, little launching pads that just increased a lot of complexity so that it gave the prey an ability to, to move around uh, relative to the, to the predator. Um, and, and he was actually able to, this shows um, his results over 200 days, he was actually able to get three full cycles of, uh, of the predator-prey oscillation. And up here just shows you that um, 
there's sort of a cat and mouse game going on. It shows you the, the location of the prey mites relative to the predator mites at these different points in time of this cycle, showing <coughs> that they're moving around the system and that the complexity allowed uh, this, this coupled oscillator to, to persist. And of course, that has a lot. You know, we present this because it was a classic experiment, it was a pioneering experiment, but I mean, there have been a lot more since then. And, and of course, it has implications for um, stability of populations in the natural world. As we make the natural world less and less complex, it reduces the ability of populations that are engaged in these coupled oscillatory systems to, to persist. It increases the likelihood of extinction. So this was like a, minimum, a tiny little localized extinction in, in his experimental system. Uh, another classic uh, example that's often cited about the role of predation in regulating population dynamics has to do with uh, rubber plantations. Over here. in Malaysia. Did I spell that right? That looks wrong. Oh well. Is that okay? <laughs> um, and I don't have any data for you, so I'm just going to, this is just, just a, a story, but it, it's very compelling. And there, there is data uh, somewhere, but I don't have a slide. Um, but in the, in the first half of the century, um, in these rubber plantations in Malaysia, they had a tremendous diversity of, of insects, but didn't have any real serious problems with insect pests in the, in the rubber plantations. And in, in, the, in 1950, they had a small outbreak of defoliating caterpillars. And that was right about the time uh, that DDT was uh, invented. And synthesized and became available, and so entomologists went down and, and um, sprayed the, the plantation with DDT, hoping to get rid of this, this caterpillar, and uh, the next year the outbreak got bigger, they sprayed more, the next year the outbreak got bigger, they sprayed more, and finally the, the whole thing was out of control, and they said, what's going on here? You know, we're killing these things and it, it's getting bigger. To make a long story short, what they were doing there was a, uh, this is a cocoon. Oh boy. How do, you, how do you spell cocoon? That's not right. Is that right? Anyway, you know what I mean. Uh, cocoon. Caterpillars uh, live in cocoons, and there was a, that's a wasp with a, big long uh, organ that it lays its eggs. Oh, it needs some legs, doesn't it? Okay, it needs some front legs too. There, okay, so that's a wasp that lays its eggs in these caterpillar cocoons and in doing so kills caterpillars. And what they were doing with the DDT is that they were killing this natural predator of the wasp. Um, and the caterpillars themselves were, while in the cocoon, were actually protected from the DDT. 
So the more they put on, the more they killed the wasp. And the predator, the, the, the caterpillars were um, released from, from this controlling predation and they had huge outbreaks. So, so it's another example of in nature, it's really hard. You can't see what's controlling what until you disrupt it. You have to do an experiment or either inadvertently or, or on purpose uh, because everything is dynamic and turning over, but it looks relatively stable. And that's why this is so hard. Another, and this is one of my favorite examples of this, because um, it brings together a lot of con con um, concepts that we've been talking about, uh, is predation, shapes, community structure. And this is another example of uh, introduced species. Um, <clears throat> and this is St. John's wort. Which was introduced to California from Europe. And it I'm going to draw a couple of habitats here. This is a forest. And this is a meadow. So this is grass. Okay. And this is trees. And these are St. John's warts. So it could grow equally well in the meadow and in the forest. <clears throat> uh, and it was getting out of control, so they introduced a beetle from Europe that feeds on St. John's wort to try to uh, bring it into under control. And what they found was that the beetle, because the beetle's preferred habitat was the meadow, that St. John's wort persisted in the forest but was eliminated from the meadow. Now, uh, because the beetle prefers the sunny habitat of the, the meadow. So if you, were a, if you were an ecologist and you, were, and you didn't know that this beetle had been introduced, you just walked into this state, you knew nothing about the history, you wanted to study the ecological niche of St. John's wort, you would say, well, it's, I only find it in the forest. It must like cooler, wetter, uh, environment because you wouldn't really know that it was being controlled by the presence of this this beetle so so this is a, a perfect example of um, if we draw the niche 
or two dimensions of the ecological niche of St. John's wort. Uh, and we say that the, just on these two dimensions, that this is the fundamental niche. On, on the moisture light gradient. The, in the presence of this beetle, the realized niche is only this low light, high moisture environment that you find in the forest. Okay? So, in other words, to, to really understand the, what's regulating the ecology of a particular organism, you have to understand all of the other organisms that it's interacting with and what their effect is on this. And, and again, that's why it's so impossible to do this without some form of experiment, either, either manipulative experiments like I've described or experiments done in the lab or inadvertent experiments by introducing species. Okay, so let's talk about now a couple of other really classic experiments that have been done. Um, and these are experiments that, that have illustrated the concept of keystone predator. There are some predators in ecosystems that are what are called keystones. And that is that if you remove them, the entire structure of the community changes. There are some that if you remove them, you don't, it doesn't have a, a dramatic effect. But there are certain ones that are keystone predators that it does. And these, of course, are, are species that conservation biologists want to first identify and second, um, uh, conserve uh, above others. Uh, because the, there's a cascade of effects if something happens to them. Uh, a classic example of this is, uh, was a study by Robert Payne many years ago um, in the intertidal community. And uh, I'm not going to go into the, 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 the details of that, but the rocky intertidal community um, is made up of this starfish, which is called Pisaster. one of the top uh, predators. <clears throat> and there are also limpets, uh, chitons. If you grew up in California, you know what, probably what these are. Mussels. These are uh, invertebrates, like barnacles, that stick to the ground, or stick to the um, the rocks, and also algae that stick to the rocks. Um, and and what, what, what Payne, Payne hypothesized that, 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 that the predator was maintaining this diversity. And the way to test that hypothesis is to put a, a cage over everything and eliminate the predator from um, certain areas. And so what he showed is that that's what that ecosystem looks like if you eliminate the predator. You can see here, here's, here's algae, here are some um, 
barnacles. This is in your this is in your textbook, so um, the, the, you can get the full story there. Uh, but there's a lot of diversity of of these small barnacle-like invertebrates. And then you eliminate the predator, and the mussels just completely take over. Uh, and and this is preemptive competition. Uh, they compete with everything else for space, and nothing else can survive there. Another example is. Um, a keystone predator is the sea otter, which uh, keeps the, the sea urchins in check uh, in, the, in the bottom of the, the substrate. And if, if the sea otter is, is not there, the sea urchins take over and they exclude the kelp. So the entire kelp forest and all the, the fishes that live in the kelp forest and all the diversity of that ecosystem relies on the sea otter's ability to keep the sea urchin population in check. Okay. Um, so some of the best evidence uh, for predation as a, as a evolutionary agent or something that's driving the natural selection of organisms is... Uh, are these defenses that have evolved uh, to avoid predation. In other words, if you're constantly under attack, um, you, the, the, your fitness will be increased by features that reduce the, your susceptibility to predation. So in this case, there are a lot of experiments. I'm going to show you a few, and, but uh, a picture's worth a thousand words here. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll show you some examples. Um, Cryptic coloration is when a prey organism has colored features that make it blend into the environment. So here's, here's a very famous example um, that was actually an, another inadvertent experiment. This is a moth uh, that comes in two forms. This is called the melanic form, which is dark uh, black or gray. And this is the, the other form, which is much lighter. And here it is on a, on a birch tree. You can see that this one blends in beautifully, whereas this one, if I were a predator looking for the moth, I would see this, but I wouldn't see that. And here's the same two moths on uh, another tree with darker bark, um, showing that in this case, this one would be more fit, and that one would be less fit. And there's a very famous study that I don't have time to go into, um, but it's in your textbook, that, that showed experimentally uh, the relative fitness between these, these two forms depending on the color of the tree trunks. And this whole, study, this whole um, example is called industrial melanism because they were, the, the reason this was noticed was that um, in, in areas of high industrialization, the tree trunks are darker colored because of the air pollution. This is back in England, back in the days when there was a lot more pollution. So they were able to show a shift in the frequency of these two forms as a function of the amount of pollution in the environment um, because their susceptibility to predation was reduced if, if, if there was pollution, if this form dominated. That study is actually rather controversial now, so I'm, that's why I'm not teaching you the details. But, uh, but 
you get the point. But these, these moths exist in these two forms. Okay, here's another example that is really convoluted that's in your textbook, so I'm not going to write on the board, but you can, you can read about it there. Uh, but it's an example of, the, of the ev what's called the evolutionary arms race. Um, and it has to do with cottonwood trees. And cottonwood trees the, produce a, a defense compound um, that the name of which is on the next slide. Yeah. Saliscortin, salisortin. Anyway, it doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what it's called. It's a it's a toxic compound that um, that makes the the tree distasteful to a predator. So, if you don't think of predators on, of trees, but the beaver is a tree predator. <laughs> it chops it down. So when a beaver uh, chops it down. Uh, cottonwood tree, the cottonwood tree sprouts new sprouts. And these new sprouts have much higher concentrations of this toxic compound than the parent tree had. In other words, the, the, the tree has a, a mechanism, that, and, I'm, and I'm sure we don't understand that yet, but someday we'll understand the genetic, the, the, the genetic underpinnings of this, the, the molecular biology of of beaver defenses, um, but the, if it's been felled by a beaver, it increases the production of this toxin in the, in the shoots that come out, saying, okay, fool me once, but you're not going to get me the next time. Um, it means there's beavers around. But the interesting thing is that, that these shoots are much more susceptible to grazing by a, a leaf beetle. In other words, this increased toxin actually, um, the, the, the shoots that have the increased toxin are actually grazed more than the parent tree by this leaf beetle. So scientists went in and said, you know, what, what's going on here? This is weird. Um, why make a defense that makes you more vulnerable to a different predator? And, and what they showed by experiment was that, <clears throat> that these leaf beetles we're using that toxin as a defense against the ants that want to eat them. Uh, so they were less susceptible to predation by ants because they had taken in the toxin from these shoots. So it's, it's a never-ending, it's called the evolutionary arms race uh, between predator and prey. And these systems get, um, get very complex. So here's the data that shows that. Um, the, that the control trees, uh, trees that haven't been felled by a beaver compared to um, trees that have been felled by a beaver and re-sprouted trees have much higher concentration of this toxin. And um, this is the larval survival time of these um, leaf beetles uh, that these are from the control trees versus the browse trees in the presence of the ants. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip that one. That one's in your, in your book, too, which has an experiment showing that, that anti-predation um, mechanisms are induced by the presence of a predator. So I would, I would encourage you to look at this in your textbook. 
um, this example. And then finally, I'm just going to go through a series of, um, of pictures that show all of the types of defenses that have been evolved as anti-predation devices. They're the obvious ones, like cacti uh, with um, spikes uh, or uh, porcupines with spikes, uh, octopi, octopi, octopuses with uh, ink predation, uh, defense. This is a caterpillar that's evolved to look like a snake. Um, at least that's the way it looks to us. Do, do we know? I mean, that's a hypothesis that the, that the predation on this would be reduced because it looks like a predator itself. Uh, these are two different ones looking like a snake. And often snakes have a bright um, colored thing on their tail to draw attention to their tail. If you're going to be attacked by a predator, you'd rather have your tail attacked than your head. Um, so this is a common motif in nature. And this one actually is, this is an insect. This is its head. Uh, and yet, if you were a predator, you'd probably think this was its head. Um, and again, uh, th whether that's been established by experiments, I don't know. So these are just examples. Um, moths uh, often have these uh, uh, eye features that look like eyes that, that would be, tend to uh, ward off a predator. This is an interesting um, story that, that, that is in your readings that shows that there are just a few genes that control the phenotype of this particular butterfly, or I think it's a moth, um, between having these spots and not having these spots. When, in the fall, when it's dry, um, and it, it's more selective advantage to look like a leaf, they look like this. But at other times of year, uh, they're visible anyway, so the selective advantage is to have these eye spots that make them look uh, like they have eyes. Uh, okay, I'll, 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 I think it's time to quit, so we'll pick this up next time, and I didn't get to show you, the, I'll show you these next time, I promise you. They're wonderful pictures of the creatures in the deep sea uh, that are very evil-looking predators that fish with their luminescent light organs. <laughs> <laughs>